I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Welcome to LiveWire. Um, okay, I know it sounds a little echoey where I am. And I don't want you to get grossed out when I tell you this, but it's because I am recording this in a bathroom. Don't worry. Nothing weird is happening. It's just that I'm backstage at Mississippi Studios. We're getting ready to do the show, and there is so much commotion going on. The bands are sound checking. The guests are getting ready to go on. The crowd is starting to fill in. This was the only place of even relative privacy. So... This is where I'm recording the first minute of the show. I'll tell you, though, this show is going to be worth it. We've got Sarah Vowell here from This American Life and the movie The Incredibles and her many books. We've also got Chris Offit here, who's written an incredible memoir about his father. And we've got music from Sam Outlaw. Stick around. It's going to be worth it, I promise. It all starts right now. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Recorded in front of a live audience at Mississippi Studios in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with New York Times bestselling author Sarah Vowell, memoirist Chris Offit, music from Sam Outlaw, and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, when he walks down memory lane, he uses Google Street View, Luke Burbank! Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Jason Rouse. We've got a great show for you. We're going to be talking about memory this hour, and we have a variety of uh, really fascinating guests who, who can talk about memory from some different angles. Uh, we came up with the theme for the hour, which is if memory serves, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying, like, am I remembering that right? <laughs> like, if memory serves, right? We have to say that because memory is really weird. We know that Eyewitness memory uh, is the worst way to figure out who did what at a crime scene. It's almost always wrong when they go back later on. Um, we've probably all had that experience where you're in a bar and you're arguing with your friend about who was in that movie or who scored that touchdown or what that band's name was, and you're so sure that you're right because you remember watching the movie and seeing... Bruce Willis, do the thing in the movie. And if you had a million dollars, you would bet it on how right you are. And then somebody gets their phone out. Because we can't have any more mystery ever in our life. Nothing can be unknown. 
for even a nanosecond, and someone looks it up, and it wasn't Bruce Willis. It was Cedric the Entertainer. You, did, you didn't even have the right ethnicity. But you felt like you remembered it. Our memory does not actually serve us a lot of the time. Here's the uh, ironic part. You know what our memories are super good at? Remembering the embarrassing things that we have done. Memory, uh, like a steel trap on that one. Vivid, clear, super slow-mo, moment-by-moment memory of things that we've done that are embarrassing. But not the good things. Like, I don't remember the exact expression on my wife's face when we were saying our wedding vows. If I had to guess, I'd say probably growing terror <laughs> at who she was marrying. I, don't, I can tell you this. I remember the exact look on her face when I said to her one time during an argument that she should enjoy my company more because I'm a professional entertainer and people pay money to be entertained by me. I'm gonna sit down for that one, just let that really soak in. That's a thing that I said with my mouth out loud to another person. My hope is that in the sort of back stretch of my life, I'm approaching 40 now, I'm gonna be 40 in a couple months, I will be able to create more good memories than bad memories, and maybe those will slowly start to push out the bad memories. So my thought is, let's start making some of those memories right now on this show. What do you guys say? Good. Um, let's, uh, all right, our theme this hour is If Memory Serves, uh, which is something that Joshua Foer knows all about. He's the author of a great book called Moonwalking with Einstein, The Art and Science of Remembering Everything. It took him from the United States Memory Championship to deep inside his own mind, where he learned to build things called memory palaces. Please welcome via phone from Boston, Joshua Foer to Livewire. Hey there, Josh. Hey, how are you? Good, good. So you are uh, really an expert on memory. You've studied it. You yourself have, have applied this idea of memory palaces. What does a memory palace actually mean and look like? Uh, it is an idea that sounds like it could have come straight out of a forehead story. The idea behind the memory palace is that if you can build an imaginary building, a structure in your mind's eye, you can then populate that building with images of things that you want to remember. And when it comes time to recall whatever it is that you're trying to remember, you just walk through that building in your mind's eye and you can see those images where you left them. It doesn't sound like it should work, but it totally does. And you've actually used this. What is your probably greatest feat of memorization? I'm a science journalist, and I ended up entering this contest called the United States Memory Championship. Now, a number of years ago, and won the contest by memorizing the order of a shuffled pack of playing cards in a minute and 40 seconds. I would create an image, a wild, crazy, weird, funny image that I would associate with every card. And then when it came time to try to remember, I would visualize each of those images in a different room in a house and then just walk through that house and I'd be able to see those images where I'd left them. Why does the brain retain this information better when you're putting it in this memory palace thing? We have really incredible visual and spatial memories. 
if you imagine what our hunter-gatherer ancestors needed to remember, it wasn't phone numbers. It certainly wasn't decks of playing cards. So what they did need to remember was, like, where the, you know, saber-toothed lion was hanging out or, like, the route back to the cave. Having a great spatial memory really counted for something. And so what this memory trick, the memory palace is doing, is co-opting our naturally very good spatial memories and using it, kind of hacking it to remember all sorts of stuff that's not as easy to remember. All right, Joshua, we decided uh, that it would be a great idea to try and test this out. So what I am going to do is I am going to walk down into the audience and I am going to ask a few audience members at random for some information about them. And then maybe with your help, I'm going to try to build a memory palace on the fly, live on public radio. And then at the end of the show, I'm going to see if I can remember this information. How much time do I really need to create a proper... Can it be tacked together in under 30 seconds? Because that's about how much time we have for this segment. Yeah, let's, let's give it a try. All right, let's try this. Sir, what is your first name? Winston. Winston. What was the name of your elementary school? MLC. What does MLC even stand for? Metropolitan Learning Center. Okay, you have to have a weird named high school. Great. Yeah. Okay, hold on. Give me a second. What, what, what city? Portland. Okay, Portland. That one will be easy for me. Okay, Winston, MLC, Portland. So I hope you're picturing this guy next to Winston Churchill. That'll help you remember his name. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay, so yeah, Winston Churchill. What about MLC? What can I think for um, MLC is... Um, um, I'll come up with something, don't worry. And then Portland, that one's easy. What, okay. if, you, what if you picture him next to Winston Churchill and Martin Luther King? Oh, yeah, but then uh, change the K to C. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. I don't know if you guys are liking this, but this is very fascinating to me. <laughs> and then Portland, that's easy. Okay, ma'am, what is your name? Emma. Emma, uh, where did you go to elementary school? Boise Elliott. Which is where? Portland, Oregon. Okay, good. This is actually going to work great. Uh, I feel like the cities are going to be pretty much a slam dunk. Okay. Uh, Emma, Boise Elliott. So I got Winston Churchill standing next to Martin Luther King, except it's a C, in Portland. And I got Emma from that movie Gwyneth Paltrow was in, going to Boise, Idaho, which is actually in Portland, which makes no sense. But, okay, that, that, I can work with that. Ma'am, what's your first name? Susan. Susan. Okay, that's my mom's name. I'm going to imagine my mom... No, wait, I'm going to come up with something different. Uh, <laughs> Susan, where'd you go to elementary school? McKinley. McKinley, okay. He's going to be standing next to uh, Churchill and MLK in this one room. Am I, is that, can that happen, Josh? Can different memories be living in the same memory palace room? Yeah, because I think you may, uh, you may get confused about who's who. All right, well, I'm going to have to give it a I shot. I would put them in different rooms if you can. Okay, so there's three different rooms. Got it. All right, and wh- what city? Salem. Salem, like the witch trials, but of Oregon. Okay, good. Great, and then, sir? Dennis. Dennis, what was your elementary school? St. Anne's. St. Anne's, okay. And that was where? Minneapolis. All right, I got it. I got it. Hold on, let me just one time through, and then I'll go back up on stage, see if I can remember this. Winston, you went to MLC in uh, MLC school here in Portland. Emma, you went to uh, Boise Learning Academy? <laughs> Boise Elliott. You went to Boise Elliott here in Portland. Susan, you went to McKinley in Salem, Oregon, and Dennis... You went to St. Anne's in Minneapolis. All right, let's see if I can remember it. Josh, what do you think the chances are that, that I will get any of those right in an hour or so? 
I think the chances that you get any of them right are pretty high. The chances that you will get all of them right, I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. But if you, if, you, if you did, like, 20 more of them, you'd be ready to enter the U.S. Emory Championship. Okay, well, let's just, I'm going to start here. If it goes okay, I'm going to call you about coaching me for the U.S. Memory Championships, okay? Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Thank you. That's Joshua Foer from Moonwalking with Einstein, the book he wrote about memory. This week's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, a proud supporter of the Global Animal Welfare Program, because you should know how the animals were raised for the meat you're buying. More information at WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Livewire from PRI. We'll be right back. Livewire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, who asks, Did you ever wonder why your most brilliant ideas seem to surface while you're running or surfing or dancing? It's because your body was designed to move. And at Ergo Depot, they encourage that by creating amazing products like chairs, stools, and stand-up desks that encourage your body to do what it was meant to do. Visit them online at ergodepot.com to check out their full line, including the Jarvis stand-up desk. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. All right, we're talking about memory this hour, and our next guest has made a practice of digging back into the collective memory of this country to produce fascinating books about the Puritans, the Kingdom of Hawaii, assassinated presidents, and now Lafayette, the French aristocrat who came to the U.S. as a teen and somehow ended up a hero of our revolution. Please welcome Sarah Vowell to Livewire. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Livewire. Thanks Thank for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Let's talk about Lafayette. Who uh, was this guy exactly? He was a French aristocrat. He was an orphan. He was 19 years old, and he came here to volunteer in George Washington's army, um, leaving his pregnant teenage wife back home in France. He was the uh, son and descendant of many generations of soldiers, and he showed up. He was like, I'm here, put me to work, and uh, he quickly established himself as one of uh, Washington's most trusted generals. When you say he showed up, like, where did he go? He gets off a boat, yeah. and he just wants to be... Trust me, no one wanted him to come, and including the King of France, who was trying... You know, when they were trying to stave off war with Great Britain, and they were like, no, don't just, like, pipe down. Um, his wife's family obviously wanted to stay because, you know, she was pregnant, um, and then he gets here, and Europe had been at peace for a few years, and so all these professional soldiers had been coming over to America in droves because they were looking for work. And by the time he got here, everyone was fed up with all these like obnoxious French people showing up, like "Make me a general," you know. But uh, he actually, all he wanted to do was, uh, you know, get in there and. Uh, he, he was just so brave and tireless that he, he proved himself pretty Because quickly. he got shot during his first battle, right? Which a lot of people would say means you're bad at being a soldier. Yeah. I mean, he was, he, he was just getting in there. I mean, he, he did get shot. That's true. But um, he, well, he was supposed to be recuperating, but he was so gung-ho to get back into the ga battle, he 
Um, his bum leg, he just wrapped it up in a blanket and put the other good leg in a boot and rode back to the front, you know? We're talking to Sarah Val. This is Livewire Radio. Her new book is Lafayette in the somewhat United States. You write somewhat united, and a, a thought that hadn't occurred to me about that period in our country's history was that for a long time, all of the presidents were just heroes of the revolution, right? And then eventually we ran out of those guys, and then it got kind of contentious. They got old and died. Right. And, um, I mean, some of my book is about when Lafayette comes back to the United States in 1824 as an old man. And it's this huge event, like 13 months, and, you know, 80,000 people are greeting his boat when he comes to New York Harbor, and it's a party in his honor every night. Um, it, was, it was one of the biggest events of the 19th century, and... Um, some of it was just affection for him and for his... He, he was very close with Washington, and, and there was a kind of nostalgia for the revolution on the eve of the 50th anniversary of the revolution, but also there was this very contentious presidential election in 1824, and it was the first time Americans would have to elect a president who wasn't one of the founders, and people were kind of scared, like, now what's going to happen? I mean, I think we know what that's like when you have to elect a non-founding father as a president, things get sticky, you know. But that was the first time, and everyone was... There was a little bit of a... There was some jitters about that. Turns out they were right to be worried. One of the things you write in the book, just as an aside, but it struck me, because I've never heard anyone say it, you hate the Palace of Versailles? I hate the Palace of Versailles. I just loathe it. Does anyone like that? I guess people like it because it's fancy or whatever. But yeah, it's one of the big things to go to if you go to France, or I'm sure part of Vegas, where I bet they've rebuilt it. I, I'm, I find it a little overdone. I, I have what I would like to call a Protestant aesthetic, you know, where I like things to be, you know, simple and straight lines and, you know, a nice piece of unvarnished wood then that place is just all like silken flim flam and gilded nonsense and like over decoration and it's just over over everything you know it started out as a hunting lodge well i feel like when someone does their house in wet the westwood neighborhood of los angeles in the style of the palace of versailles that is poor taste but the original palace of versailles that was just their groove back then, right? Can't you give them that? Yeah, I guess. Sure. <laughs> you know, at the time, if I, if I was an absolute tyrant monarch, and I, had, and I was overtaxing my people to the extent that I could afford to cover everything in silk and gold, I guess I would have... But no, in fact, no. In fact, Marie Antoinette built this other, like, crappier little farm where she could go and she would put on, like, plain white muslin dresses and she would milk cows just to get a break. Like when Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie, milked cows on TV. Like that kind of? I, I feel like your references aren't very public radio-y. Like... When I was reading this book... The whole time, I was hearing you reading it to me in my head. I found it to be very entertaining and, in a way, comforting. Because mm. I'm reading it in your voice, your written voice, and I'm also hearing your speaking voice. 
And it just felt like, oh, Sarah's hanging out with me, telling me about Lafayette. Oh, thank you. I mean, there are some editing tricks about making your writing, you know, more conversational. We could go over later. Yeah. Like, you know, and I think... Just a breakout I, session, maybe I backstage mean, or something. I do sometimes. I do, when I'm writing, I read everything aloud. And partly, I think that comes... I was a musician as a kid, and I need things to sound right. Like, some sentences... I will. This is so boring, but you asked. I mean, I like I need things to sound right. So like I'll write a sentence, and even if it says what I mean, I, like I'll need I need another syllable at the end, or my I can't go on. You know. So what does this look like? Does that mean that you then write like at your house and you kind of pace around and read the things aloud? What's the process like? Yeah, there's that. Also, um, once I have done all the research and I have and have something in my head of what I want the book to be and everything I want to cover. Each idea or character or event or anecdote gets its own little note card, and then I spend like a few weeks on the living room floor moving those around. So it kind of looks like a little, you know, like on a cop show when when the cops find the serial killer's lair. Yes. And they go in and there's all this like stuff on the wall and like arrows and it looks like that. She was stalking a French aristocrat. Yeah. But like about Hawaiian missionaries or right. something. Yeah. Um, when you've been uh, touring around and talking about this new book about Lafayette, do you feel like uh, people know less about Lafayette than you expected? More? Is it about what you were thinking it would be? Um, because before I read this book... I've been doing this for a while, so I'm fairly accustomed to Americans not being over-informed about <laughs> their history. But Lafayette's name is on a lot of things. Yeah, his name is on a lot of things. I mean, when I, I mean, it is amazing to me that he has become so forgotten, and he is more of a place than a person now, because, I mean, we were talking about that trip in 1824. I mean he was the most famous person for going, you know, and even, like, I write about this one little uh, monument to him in Nowhere, Pennsylvania. Um, they built this, like, really dinky little monument to him in 1895, you know, so he's been dead for, like, six decades by that point, and 5,000 people converge in this, like, country road for the dedication of what's essentially a lamp post. And so... He was, I mean, he, there was a reason everything's named for him because he used to be super famous. And then, for whatever reason, he's been forgotten, you know. Um, can we talk a little bit about uh, your days with This American Life, which is how a lot of people first heard about you? Okay. Um, you were one of the early producers on That's the program. That's a public radio e reference. <laughs> I well, feel like you're making progress. Okay. <laughs> you know, Sarah. You're a, like, here's you're, how you do it. So the other day I was listening to the Splendid Table, and I'm like, you know, I've never made LARB. <laughs> That's how you do okay. it. And that, like, there was this woman from Laos talking about how to make LARB, and I was like, oh, I bet I could make LARB, too. Okay. I got a lot of work to do before next week's show. <laughs> got to do a deep dive on Lynn Rosetto Casper. That's step one. And then find out what LARB is. It's uh, the national dish of Laos, Luke. Um, <laughs> I've also got to learn what Laos is. One time I was actually in Laos, and my tour guide said, I got to ask you, how did you hear about Laos? And um, I said, um, I guess 
The splendid I, table. I guess I know about it from my country bombing it. And he was like, oh, you know about that? <laughs> it was like, I get, I'm guiding Americans all the time and none of them know about that. I was like, okay, I get maybe not a lot of Americans are up on the secret bombing of Laos, but like the ones who actually go to Laos? Well, a good way to learn about our history is by reading Sarah Val's new book. It's called Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. Sarah, thanks for being on LiveWire. McKinley, that's the, high, that's the elementary school. You see, it's all in the palace, you guys. This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines with 80 non-stops from Seattle. And this winter, they've added New York's Kennedy Airport. Now, the city that never sleeps is just a nap away. Alaska Airlines, keeping you connected non-stop. More information at alaskaair.com. Our musical guest this hour walked away from a successful career in advertising to follow his dream of playing country music. And thank God he did, because it gave him the time to write some amazing songs, including one with possibly the greatest name in country music history. Jesus, take the wheel and drive me to a bar. Please welcome Sam Outlaw to Livewire. I'm on my way. Through some kind of ghost town I'm on my way back home Wish that you could see this city Just how it used to be Burning with the fire of industry Wish that you could feel life We once felt on these streets But you can't no, you can't Cause I'm on my way Through some kind of ghost town I'm on my way back home I'm on my way Wish that I could slow down I'm on my way back home It's nothing but a wounded highway There's no blood in these veins I see a car, truck, or train There's no one left to say what happened But I want someone to blame But I can't No, I can't Cause I'm on my way Through some kind of ghost town I'm on my way back home I'm on my way Wish that I could slow down I'm on my way back home I'm looking through the ashes In the rubble, rocks and sand But digging's got me nothing But some more dirt on my hands I didn't see it coming Never thought we'd see her fall Maybe she was crumbling all along You see, you can see my family Just how it used to be Burning with a love's bright and free 
wish that I could hold my mama just once more before she leaves, but I can't. No, I can't. No, I can't. No, I can't. No, I can't. Cause I'm on my way through some kind of ghost town. I'm on my way back home. I'm on my way. Wish that I could slow down. I'm on my way back home. And I'm on my way through some kind of ghost town. I'm on my way back home. I'm on my way. Wish that I could go around. I'm on my way back home. I'm on my way back home. I'm on my way back home. That's Sam Outlaw right here on Livewire. Thanks, you guys. This is Livewire Radio. If you like what you're hearing, try subscribing to our podcast. Uh, we keep you company during life's mundane tasks, carpooling, going to the gym. We'll even hang out with you while you're cleaning the bathroom. If you promise to wash your hands before you hit play on the phone. You can find us at all of the places you get podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all those places. So please, check us out. Okay, our theme this hour is about memory and... Um, if you remember back to February of last year on this very radio show, we read this article in the New York Times about this magical list of questions that promised to make any two strangers fall in love if they, if they asked them. Do you guys remember this article? It was a huge thing in the modern love column. Well, we decided to put this to the test. So we grabbed two people who had never been on a date. We asked them to go backstage while we were doing the show and ask each other this list of questions and it totally worked they fell in love they live together now and they're here with the latest on their lives please welcome the live wire lovebirds katie watkins and jed arkley Welcome back to the show, you two. Thanks. Thank you. Um, did either of you see this coming when we asked you last year to go backstage and run <laughs> this list of questions? Oh, no way. No, I feel like we just talked about the other day how different our lives were a year ago than they are right now. It's crazy how much has changed. Yeah, like I think in the a day, good way. In a good yeah, way. In a yeah. Great, yeah, in a in great, great way. way. I mean, I think the day before that show, we didn't even, we had no idea. And, yeah. and, it's, and now it just feels like, oh yeah, of course, we're living together. <laughs> like it just seemed like it was that, yeah. Yeah. So. Did, did you feel in the moment that something amazing was happening? Yeah. And we, we, we re-watched the video on our anniversary, and we're like... Um, and it was amazing, because it's like you actually see... We didn't say it at the time, but like that was... We were in love. Yeah. Like, and it actually was... So if you want to see love being created, like, watch that video. It was... I just that think sounded really yeah. dirty. It's so... But, like... Well, it's so funny to see the difference between the first segment and the last segment, because it was, like, clearly we're just giggling and crazy by the yeah. end. I couldn't even... I'm blushing right now thinking about it. 
Yeah. But now, but now, let me ask this because you are both performers here in Portland. Mm-hmm. You're improv uh, people, and there has been some suspicion when your names have come up that this is just an elaborate, elaborate <laughs> bit that you are very committed to. Yeah, and our contract ends tonight, so it's been a real fun time. Yeah, yeah. thank you. No, no, that's uh, people have asked me that a lot, and they yeah. said, "Oh, that's that's a good gig you did." And I said, "I've never been on stage less prepared because usually I'm used to being on stage, and I'm, you know, I." mess around on it but like when you brought us out that second time i felt totally like naked and vulnerable yeah and like, it, was it was it was hard <laughs> but then people th- thought yeah they thought but yeah they've thought we made it up but nope uh we're talking to katie watkins and jed arkley they are uh now living together uh they were forced to <laughs> go through a series of questions from the new york times by this very radio show livewire do you guys now feel pressure though for this to work out because it's happening in the public eye. I mean, you must know how Kanye and Kim feel. <laughs> <laughs> we we actually debated at one point, like refusing to come on the show again. Like we we had said, like you know what, that was fun. It's real life now. But it's real life it's real now, life. Luke. <laughs> Obviously, that that conversation didn't go far, but. Um, yeah. <laughs> Because we're here. No, we're and we, I appreciate you guys so much for making this happen. Yeah. All right, Jed and Katie, we are very, very happy for you two, but we also know that living together and loving together is no easy thing. And it's important that you really learn about each other. So we've asked you each some questions earlier today about the other one and yourselves, and we recorded your answers, and now it is time to know how much you really know about each other. For trademark reasons, we cannot call this a newlywed game, and also you're not married. Uh, So we're calling this the cohabitation examination. Whichever one of you knows the other one better is clearly more loving and wins the permanent upper hand in all arguments going forward. So this is going to be called cohabitation examination. Jason Rouse, uh, do you mind keeping score on this? I don't mind at all. Okay. So... Wink. These are real. <laughs> these are your real answers to questions that we asked you. You guys have not colluded on this, right? You don't know what the other person said. No. Okay. I'm not sure I want to know. <laughs> actually, this may be Oops. the beginning and the end of your relationship. We made it, and we can break it. We may be doing it right here, right now. Okay. So, question number one, Jed, do you remember what Katie was wearing on your first date together? I have to answer that, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, okay, I remember it was fancy, and I remember it, was, it, was, it had a high neck and, and long sleeves. All right. Any colors come to mind? Uh, black. Okay. <laughs> Let's hear what Katie answered about her outfit on your guys' first date. I was wearing, I had a flowy blue shirt on and some jeans and... Some sick heels. So that was pretty far off, Jed. <laughs> I guess I thought she was at a funeral now that I'm thinking about it. The way I described it. Um, do you remember the heels being sick? I do now, yeah. Yeah. Good answer, bro. Good answer. Good answer. Katie, what do you remember Jed wearing on your first date? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say a plaid shirt and jeans. Now, is that because that's what he always wears, or is that because <laughs> yeah. you remember him wearing that specifically? Now that I know his closet, yeah, I'm just going to go so for So you're taking an educated guess. Yeah. All right, let's hear Jed's answer to what he was wearing on your first date. A blue gingham shirt with my gray suit. <laughs> the gray suit. 
I don't think we can Boy, give either of you a point for that. Let's keep no. this game moving. Um, Katie, let's stay with you. Which one of Jed's friends likes you the least, do you think? I think that they all like me just the, the same amount, which is maybe moderate to a lot. Okay, but if you had to pick one you think is oh my God. more on the moderate side, who would you pick? Uh, As Pat Benatar said, love is a battlefield. Uh, uh, nope. No his, helping, Jed. I'm just going to say his mom. Wow. She lo- I'm just kidding. Oh. That just she got really me. real. She it's happening. Me. She loves let's, me. Let's hear what Jed answered to that question of which one of his friends likes you the least. Maybe he said mom. I doubt it. Uh, they all like Katie. Which yeah. oh. is true. Jason, how do you score that? Because it's kind of like... She, it was her first thing that they all... I'm going to give it to her. Okay. All right. That's fair. That's a point. It's not really true, but I'm going to give it to her. <laughs> they do. All right. Okay. Uh, Jed, same question to you. Which one of Katie's friends do you think basically can't stand you? Uh, Carrie. <laughs> Jed's answer is Katie's friend, Carrie. Let's hear what Katie said. My dad. What? <laughs> My dad? Every time you guys are on the show, there's at least one moment where I am truly wow. speechless. That may have been that moment. Um, okay, no points for either side. Let's keep this rolling. They put me in a corner. They made me say something. <laughs> All right, next question. Okay, uh... Let's see. Uh, Jed, we asked Katie what habit of yours will lead to your inevitable breakup. What do you think she said? That was easy. I'm oversensitive and I move loudly. (laughs) All right, let's hear what Katie said. Probably the triple burp, the old one, two, three. (laughs) It's true, that would be fair. Are you oversensitive about her calling it the triple burp? Because you may still be sort of right. It's technically a triple burp, but you should hear Katie burps like a truck stop, <laughs> like, like a truck stop waitress. We will, we'll get you separate Ubers home. Don't All worry. Right, it's just fine. We're talking to the Livewire lovebirds, Jed Arkley, Katie Watkins. We made them go on a date on this show. It worked out great up until this point. I think we can all agree. They now live together. We're playing cohabitation examination with them. All right, uh, let's see. Katie, same question was uh, given to Jed about which habit of yours could likely break up the relationship. What do you think he said? (laughs) Please laugh nervously into the microphone. (laughs) We are recording this for radio. Uh, um, I want to say burps, too. Wow. A lot of burping going on in this household. Let's hear what Jed said. We're open. We're... Her looking at her iPhone. <laughs> I mean, oh. society, right? <laughs> I have can, nothing Can Jed say. get half a point for a save? <laughs> I think turning that back onto society right? at large was a veteran I mean, move. I, you know, it's, I'm going to because he's not doing great. He's not <laughs> okay. doing great. All right, here we go. We're in the home stretch. Don't worry. We're going to get the nose up. Jed, what do you think Katie's favorite thing about you is? Um, I would say my sense of humor. Let us hear what Katie said. Probably the triple burp. The old one, two, three. That was the other file. I'm sorry. Let me play Katie's actual answer. That would have been a sweet answer. I love it and I hate it. All right. Here is Katie's actual answer. 
It's definitely his sense of humor. They're kissing on stage. I want the radio audience to know. All right. And, and Katie, what do you think Jed said his favorite thing about you is? Uh, maybe, um, I don't know, that I'm kind? Is that a... That is a thing. I don't know if that's a thing you do. I mean, it is a thing. Let's hear what Jed said. She's grounded, and she's curvy and sexy. Whoa. <laughs> All right. I should get a point for that. Jason. Let's give him a point for that. Do I get a point for that? You can't go to a point on her point. That's the point for her. All right. Jason, uh, as official scorekeeper, who won this round of a cohabitation examination? It was really close, but Jed Arkley won by half a point. Oh, congratulations. Jed loves Katie more. We'll see you guys back here in (laughs) one year. We'll see you back here in one year to hear how you're doing. Thank you so much. That's cohabitation examination. Thank This week's show is brought to you by New Belgium Brewing, certified as a mission-based B Corp since 2013, meeting requirements in the categories of social and environmental performance, accountability, and transparency. And speaking of transparency, beer is transparent. And so is New Belgium's seasonal brew, Side Trip, a Belgian-style pale ale. Now you have all the facts, people. Get more information over at newbelgium.com. We're talking about memory this week on the show, and of course a lot of us have memories about what our parents did to make ends meet when we were growing up, but our next guest probably has your memories beat. You see, Chris Offit's teeth were extremely crooked when he was growing up, but his father saw a way to pay for those braces and support the family in general. The plan was to write pornographic novels, (laughs) hundreds of them in fact. Chris's teeth turned out okay, the family dynamic Not as much. All of which is detailed in Chris's amazing new book, My Father the Pornographer. Please welcome Chris Offit to Livewire. Welcome to Livewire. Thank you. This book of yours is really incredible, man. Congratulations. It's, it's riveting and unlike anything I've read. When did you first realize that your dad was writing pornographic novels or erotica uh, for a living? Well, I got an inkling of it when I was 12. My parents were gone, and he had an office, a home office that no one was allowed into. So, of course, when they went to town uh, now and again for a party, I hit it and hit it hard and <laughs> and there was a uh, he, there was a, a manuscript and a, and a page still in the typewriter and it had a title and it had the name John Cleave on it and right above it was his shelf of published books that said John Cleave so I, it dawned on me oh that is this is what dad's doing and his name was not John Cleave no his name was Andrew Jefferson off at the but John Cleave was his dad had 17 uh, pseudonyms however dad didn't see it that way he had one alter ego named John Cleave John Cleave had his own wardrobe and signature and clothing and John Cleave had 16 pseudonyms what are some of the more memorable names of these of these novels uh let's see well there's one that was never popular with uh my uh my wife horny (laughs) daughter-in-law I think yeah that was not 
Um, bondage babes, mm, asking for it, begging for it, not wanting, uh, like, you know, there was, I can't even think of them, there were so many. Blunder Broad was one that was a, a parody of Wonder Woman, and, you know, these things were, it was the, I think it will be in the future looked back as the golden age of porn, really, because it was... Maybe he wasn't wrong, then. Maybe he wasn't wrong. They were lighthearted and tongue-in-cheek and silly. A lot of them were. Yeah. Uh, time travel porn, which is probably my favorite one. You could, you, you know, you're married, you have dissatisfaction, maybe you would like to carry on a little clandestine relationship. Hey, I jump in the time travel machine, go back, come back, I'll never get caught. <laughs> right? That is the most guy thing I've ever heard. Well, we have mastered time travel. Think about the implications of that. I am going to use it to try to bag a lady. Right. Chris, uh, stay, stay where you are. We're okay. going to come back and chat more with Chris Offit. He's got a new book out. It's called My Father, the Pornographer. This is Livewire Radio coming to you from Portland, Oregon. Back in a minute. Hey there, it's Luke. You might already know this, but in case you didn't, Livewire is actually a nonprofit. That's right. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners, to keep this little radio show going. Consider becoming a member of our League of Extraordinary Listeners and support this show, which connects you to the artists, music, and comedy that we know you love. You can find out more by visiting livewireradio.org. Welcome back to Livewire. We're talking to Chris Offit. His new book is My Father, the Pornographer. Was he proud of all of this material that he was creating, even though it was, as he called it, titillators? Yes, he was proud of it. Uh, he wanted it, he, he had to keep it secret, but he also wanted to uh, be known for it. So it was a, I think it was a tough spot for him to be in. And this was an incredibly conservative. Uh, uh, community. Yeah, in where was this? Eastern Kentucky in the Appalachian Hills. Uh, dirt roads. Known for its erotica. Well, it's known, my home county is known for the woman who refused to issue gay marriage licenses. Okay. That's my That's home good. county. Yeah. So, you know, it was kind of a, it was a necessary secret. He thought he was, would be known in the future for being the king of 20, uh, 20th century porn. That, he, he believed that. Uh, and maybe it's true. It's hard to know. Because he was a very gifted writer, and a gifted writer as a young person, mm -hmm. and won contests, mm -hmm. and also wrote some sci-fi stuff. I mean, he could have been George R.R. R. Martin. He knew George R.R. R. Martin. I mean, he knew all those, all those writers, uh, science fiction writers from the 70s. He wrote and published 30 science fiction novels, which gave him a, a, a public cover, so to speak, you know, a way to, to pass, at least in the, in the hills of Kentucky. I'm wondering, um, you write in this book about how when your father passed away, mm -hmm. you sort of inherited, in a way, all of this stuff he had in the house, just piles and piles and piles of notes and books. And mm -hmm. How uh, did going through all of those books and all this volume of stuff that he wrote when he was writing this uh, pornographic stuff throughout his career, how did that impact your thoughts about him as a father and your relationship with him when he was gone and you're just going through the material? Well, it gave me insight uh, into... You know, I wound up ultimately with a, with a, a unfiltered access to my father's mind. And most adult children never have that. You know, you have a, a, your parent tells you a story. They're telling you a story that they want you to hear. Dad wasn't telling this story. He lived in the same house for 50 years. He never threw anything away. And uh, I inherited it. 
He wasn't a great father, but, but every writer deserves a bibliography. So my goal was to assemble a bibliography, send it to a science fiction website because I had so much wrong information, and then I found out there were 400 books. There were including 25 unpublished manuscripts. Dad's unpublished work is more than most writers produce in their lifetime. So I, I don't know why I did it, but once I started, I, I just thought I have to keep on going. And then at a certain point, maybe at a halfway point, how do you stop and go backwards? How has uh, your, your father's legacy affected you as a writer? Have you spent a lot of time trying to be not him? Well, I spent years trying to not be dad uh, to, you know, some degree of success. But really, there's a winner where, you know, dad was obsessed with sex. He was. I mean, what he had to have been. There was a winter when I was in the middle of all this when I realized I, 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 I am just like my dad. I'm shuffling around the house. I'm not leaving the house. I'm now obsessed with his obsession for sex. My entire house is a workplace filled with porn, just piles of it everywhere. And it was disconcerting. Uh, but I'm not him. You know, he would, let's put it this way. If I had died young, he would never have written a book about me. It's just, a, it was a way of getting to know him and seek, uh, finding insight into him and me. The book is great. It's My Father the Pornographer. It's Thank Chris you. Offit's new work. Chris, thanks for coming on Livewire. You're welcome. <laughs> Hey, uh, if you'd like to come see us uh, on Wednesday, March 2nd, we got another show right here at Mississippi Studios in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Jen Kirkman will be here performing comedy and talking about her new book. And also, Hey Marseille will be playing us some music, which should be a, uh, a fun time for all. So come by and see us. Or go to livewireradio.org to get more information on tickets. All right, here we go. I'm walking back into the audience. If people were listening to the earlier part of the show, they know that we're talking about memory this episode. And I decided to try to use a technique called building a memory palace to memorize information about four random members of the audience. I know it seems so slick and so Hollywood and so smooth when I talked to them at the beginning of the show, you would assume it was a setup. It was not. I had never seen these people before in my life. I asked them their first name, the name of their elementary school, and the city where that school was. All right, sir, your name is Winston. You went to... MLC school right here in Portland, Oregon. Yep, yes. Ma'am, your name is Emma. You went to something called like Boise Ed. Boise what? Boise Elliott. Boise Elliott, also here in Portland. Yep. All right, okay. Uh, It's like almost two for two. Ma'am, your name is Susan. You went to McKinley in Salem, Oregon. That's right. Oh, okay. And sir, your name is hard for me to remember. Uh, your name is uh, is uh, is uh, Dennis. Dennis, you went to St. Anne's in uh, Minneapolis. Hey, what the hell, you guys? That worked a lot better than I thought it was going to. All right, here we are at the end of the show, everybody, and it's uh, time for us to find out what we learned. 
This is where I'm talking to random people in the audience about what they learned in the last hour. Ma'am, what is your name? Eliza Crockett. What did you learn in the last hour? Uh, let's see. I learned that um, uh, Lafayette is all over the United States, but most people know nothing about him. Okay. Sarah Val is actually sitting in front of you. Was that the takeaway that you were intending with your Lafayette book? I've heard worse. All right. It's pretty good. Sir, you're sitting there with a look on your face that says, please do not put that microphone near me, which is like, uh, like I'm like a moth to the flame. What is your name? Edward. Edward, what did you learn in the last hour? I learned that it is possible to improve your memory. Is it something you might put into action in your own life with these uh, memory palaces? Possible. Possible. Okay, we'll take it. All right. That's enough learning for one night. All right, let's tell you who helped make this show possible. Thanks, of course, to our guests, Sarah Vowell. Jed Arkley and Katie Watkins, the Livewire Lovebirds. Chris Offit, Joshua Foer on the telephone from Boston, and music by Sam Outlaw. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodation generously provided by Provenance Hotel. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Jim Brunberg is our producer and editor. Laura Hatton is our producer. Our announcer is Jason Rouse. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director. House sound by D. Neil Blake. Thanks to Revival Drum Shop. Our development director is Kim Bergstrom. Our operations manager is Lauren Masterson. Our talent wrangler is Elia Unverzat. Additional funding provided by the Meyer Memorial Trust, the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Regional Arts and Culture Council. For more information about our show or becoming a member of Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.